Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify things that are, so that not one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities and Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and they cannot understand them because they are discerning only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments all about things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's really nice to see you all here, and um, I hope that you're looking forward to coming to this part of God's Word. I'm finding Corinthians a real challenging uh, letter to be looking at, but also incredibly rich, and so I hope that you're, um, you're experiencing it that way as well, uh, that it's both um, a blessing, but also unsettling that we might, that we might be growing, uh, if you think about I don't know, if you're any kind of horticulturist, it's often said that prune it hard and it'll, um, it'll help it to 
to thrive. And so sometimes God's word really does that for us. So as I pray, that's what I want to pray, that God would could be working in us in that way. Our loving Father, we thank you that in your wisdom, Lord, you've given us our book. Lord, you've given us uh, real people, Lord, that we can look into and see your spirit at work, your gospel message at work to bring about transformation, to bring about life, to bring about the change that, that you now desire to see in us, that you desire to see in, in people right across the world. Lord, we're heartened that many millions of people right now join together, unite around this word and are transformed by it. So Lord, please continue to do that with us here now. Lord, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You might not believe this, but I actually nearly, at one point in my very late teens, became cool. I actually nearly reached the level where I thought, oh yeah, I'm nearly cool. And I noticed it. I was like, I'm nearly, I'm nearly one of the cool kids. It didn't last very long. It was almost as soon as I realized it, the moment had passed and it just never eventuated. Um, that's a bit of a silly thing, but it's actually a thought that I had when I was, when I was about 19 or something like that. But um, you might know about me that back 10 years ago now, when I was just 25, um, I got a job teaching high school scripture out at Armadale. And one of the ladies that was involved um, in hiring me, interviewing me, in seeing that that ministry happened... I'm pretty confident that she was under the illusion that I brought cool into that position, which, you know, <laughs> I don't know what she was thinking. But she thought very much that that, um, that was a big part of it, trying to take the gospel and make it cool for the kids. And when you hear that, you just kind of go, oh, cool. It's almost like you're spelling cool with a capital K. That's just daggy, isn't it? And sometimes, you know, when, when people have tried to reach out to youth, they try really hard to be cool to fit in with them. Um, I do remember being a young adult before, before we had kids, and it, was, it wasn't quite about being cool, it was more about being hip, about kind of being not cool in a really cool kind of way. That's being hip, isn't it? But you know, it probably lasted about six months into having a little baby and then it just kind of like, that died a very hard death. At this age that I'm at now, and I don't know where you're at, but it feels like comfort is the, is the goal. And if you're thinking about how that applies to church, maybe a church that's really trying to go after young adults, they might try to make things really, you know, um, hip, really cutting edge. A church that's trying to go after families. What are we tempted to do? Let's just make it really comfortable. Let's make it really, you know, let's think of every different way that we can serve every different person. Now, of course, that's a, that can be a very loving thing to do. But there's a point where we can, we can as Christians, where Christians just do this, they, they get caught up on style of things. They get caught up on the style of things, and that starts to take precedence over the substance of things. It's a style over substance 
problem. And what happens when a church becomes a church that exists with its focus just on its style is that it starts to overlook the thing that makes it a church, and that is the gospel. And that's what, in a kind of crude way, the Corinthians have done. They've gone for the the trend of their city. And we've kind of alluded to this, and I've said a bit about this, but in these verses that we've come to today, this is where Paul really goes hard after it, and that's why we're bringing it up again. Because for the Corinthians, they're, they're putting substance over style. Well, it's, brought them, it's made them fall right back into sin. It's caused them to fall into vision, to division. There's a church with a bunch of people in it where the people there are just not talking to each other. The cold shoulder, the keeping at a distance, talk to the hand kind of stuff. I'm not talking to you. All there's people that are just out there. I'm leaving. I've had enough. I'm just gone. You guys can be left alone. We, we, picked, we read this last week in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul wrote what he's heard. He's, he's, I heard that one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Paulus. Another says, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. See, they were clinging to their claim on being the wisest, that the, they were following the wisest leader that had come through their church. They were, they were being Corinthian in that way. Their style that they were going for was that they were claiming that their person was the most eloquent or most powerful speaker. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a setting where you've really felt a strong conviction and you've been in the presence of someone who is a very powerful speaker. And it's very compelling, isn't it? And often when I've experienced it, it is God-given. It is, you, can, you can sense that that person there at that time is, is not doing this to, you know, pull the wool over my eyes or to take me in any particular direction. They, they can do this very faithfully, but they're God-gifted. And you, and you kind of, you, you know, you, you can just hear and, and feel and you sense the power of God in what they're saying. That's not what really is happening here. Because for the Corinthians, they look for that kind of power, but, but, but it's really not about the message at all. And so where they've tried to equate that kind of cultural thing with the church and, and these leaders that have been through there, well, it's de-unifying. And it's just not based in reality. And so Paul goes and he writes, look, it's pretty, it's pretty much, uh, uh, he's not exactly having a dig at them, but it's not the nicest thing for him to say to them. Look at verse 26 with me. He goes back to how did they become Christians? Who are these Corinthians at all? Listen to verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He's not exactly trying to win, the, win friends with them, is he? Think about what you were. Think about how utterly unimpressive you guys were. But how were they Christians? Well, it says there, God called them. And the people that God called, the people that responded to his message, it wasn't the most popular. It wasn't the most impressive people of Corinth. 
be as the culture would have had different people come in and we're talking the age of, of, of you know, the echoes of Greek philosophers, which, I mean, that's a world that I don't really have a full concept of and it might be a vague kind of notion, but people would have blown in and blown out of town and, and people would have got caught up with the teachings of these philosophers, these philosophies, these trends, these styles. They would have been attracted to the new thing, caught up in it because it's, it's shiny or pretty or... But the people that responded to the gospel, that's not what it was about. It wasn't about a flash presentation. And the people there, they weren't really those kind of people anyway. Paul says there, not many of you would have made it with that crowd. Not many of you could have really claimed to be like those people anyway. God certainly wasn't looking for that. And do you know what? That means that these people, these Christians in Corinth, they should, they should have been really standing out, really standing out in their town, in a town where it is all about style and wisdom and eloquence because they're just so not that. That's what should have been going on there. And so Paul keeps writing, look at verse 27 with me. But God chose the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The gospel message itself, it undoes the kind of human pride that's caught up in what the Corinthians were about. It picks it apart. And Paul reminds them that, you know, really... You weren't the wise. You weren't the strong. And this message, it only works when it's received with humility. He goes on, he calls them the lowly, the despised. He's not trying to butter them up, but he's not attacking them either. Just reminding them that you can't receive the gospel. You can't be a child of God without a humble posture an admission that you need it. And that's really important because he's going to get to talking about maturity. And, and what he's going to show is that this is actually something that you never grow out of. In fact, all the way into the second letter of Corinthians, there's a very famous passage that basically says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And Paul's writing again to the same people and he's talking about them and he's talking about the message. He's talking about actually him and his own weakness. And he says this, we have this treasure, that is of the gospel, in jars of clay to show, so that for the purpose of to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not us. In Christian people, in the Christian church, we display a powerful message of the gospel and we put forward our own weaknesses in humility in order that it shows that it's not us, but it lets the true light shine. And this is exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? Jesus was crucified in his time under the might of the most powerful empire, most conquering empire to date in human history. And he was put to death 
under the most torturous death that they could come up with. If there was a display of human power, was it not the Romans and their crucifixion? You don't argue, there was no arguing back with them. And yet by that, that I mean, and, and that is, is that not the like pinnacle of human rebellion and human sinfulness as well? It's not just human pro, like um, power, it's human pride and arrogance that we are the undefeatables. Yet by that, God overcomes the greatest problem of sin and of death. That's why he's already written, we, this was in our last week's reading, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in verse 23 of chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the, um, to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul's pleading with them, realise, realise, be very clear on what makes you a believer. And you might think, doesn't, want God an, doesn't God want an impressive church? Isn't part of our mission, of, of, of our witness to our community about trying to um, win people to come here? Look, I hope you realise, of course it is, absolutely it is. But the thing that God's given us, the power that God, God has given us, is, is in the message. And in the effect that that message has on our lives. Have you ever been into an ornate cathedral? Maybe you've travelled through Europe and you've seen one of those massive ones where, you know, it's all painted on the ceiling. Or it has all the beautiful stained glass. When I did live out at Armadale, well, there was two right near each other, the Catholics and the Anglicans. We went to the Anglican church. It was, it, it was like this award-winning building for the brickwork in it. You'd look at the brickwork and it was, it was art. It wasn't a building, it was art. Have you ever visited a church that's kind of like one of the, you know, modern, modernly built church and the lights and the sound is crisp and the chairs, oh, they're so comfortable. So comfortable. You could stay there all day. Maybe you've been in one of those churches where the music is just exactly as you would like it. Now, all that stuff in the right perspective is fine. The people that made a lot of those cathedrals were doing so in a way that communicated the right thing to the people that they were made for, giving an impression of the grandeur of God, of his beauty. Often the pictures are depicting biblical things. Modern churches, well, if you're going to build it, you might as well build it, you know, in the right kind of way. You don't want to just build some scraps. Of course, write the music that makes sense culturally to you, but in the right perspective, it's fine. But if, it, if that's the strategy of any church to reach people, well, you're only going to reach people so long as you can keep providing what they want. And you actually end up promoting a different gospel because who's at the center of that message? Who's at the center of that strategy? It's not Jesus, it's, it's you. We've talked about that. That's what de-unifies a church. 
Now, later in chapter 9, Paul will get to saying of his own ministry, chapter 9, verse 19, he says, I'm free and I belong to no one. I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those uh, not having the law, I became like one of those who have the law, though I am not from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those who not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by whatever means possible, I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in his blessings. It's not about being thoughtless about how you reach people. But it's understanding where that stuff fits. How it ought to work out. And understanding that that is not the message. That is not the message. Style has a place, but it's just not over the substance of the gospel. The Corinthian problem was that the style had become the message. And of course, you've got to ask, well, whose style is it anyway? Whose style is it anyway? What is it that should be impressive in a church? It should be the way that the gospel humbles people. It should be the way that the gospel transforms the lives of people to be unlike the patterns of the world. It's that Galatians chapter 5, the, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, that's what needs to be on display. That's what should be impressive. Now, for some people, well, if we read verse 23 again, preaching Christ crucified, it is a stumbling block to the Jews. It is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's like, that's okay. We can live with that. We can live with people calling us fools because it doesn't matter what people call us. It matters how God sees us. It matters who he declares us to be. We live with that and we, we rejoice in that. Oh, that we might be rejoicing in that, hey. And see, Paul doesn't just line these Corinthians up and talk about how unimpressive they were. He turns the lens around on himself. Look at verse uh, chapter 2 now. Now, other places Paul demonstrates that he was called to follow Christ, not because of his credentials and not because of his strength. But here he's actually reflecting on the ministry that he had to the Corinthians. And Paul didn't found this church in Corinth by relying on the cultural style. As he became all things to all people, he didn't buy into this Corinthian way of doing things because he knew that it wouldn't be for their good. He knew that they'd get bogged down in it. He tells us in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he didn't come with eloquence. Eloquence is like just a special fancy way of speaking, trying to be impressive. It's kind of speaking that's very proud and boastful. You can kind of get the best of like, can you believe he said it, Donald Trump quotes, and kind of throw that in there a little bit. It's very, very focused on the person that is speaking. Now, ironically, this section 
I think it's from about verse 17 of chapter 1 to about verse 2 of chapter 2. And I don't know the Greek language. I can't. But they say of this section that as Paul wrote this, he actually imitates that style of speech. As the Corinthians would have read this, they would have been reading one of the most eloquently put pieces of literature that could have been got up and erated and been impressive. And what Paul's doing there, he's actually showing, it's, I didn't do it because I wasn't that. I could have done that. I, the guy Apollos had said of him that he probably was that kind of preacher when he was there doing his ministry. But he didn't because he was trying to avoid what's happened. Even though he could have, he didn't. And because he, he wanted to show that the, that the all-surpassing power was in the message of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 2 shows that it's the message that matters. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and Him crucified. Uh, Mark Deaver, he's an American Baptist pastor, he's pointed this out about Paul in Corinth. And he kind of, this sums it up so well. He was an unimpressive man with an unimpressive message that is by human standards. And he delivered it in an unimpressive way. And you kind of think, that's true, but how did it even have any effect? Well, look at verse 4. It had effect because my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Check your foundations. Churches, check your foundations. Church here, let's check our foundations. This invites us really to measure how and what it takes to reach people. If it's not the Spirit, if it's not God doing the work, then what is it? Now, I assume that you want to see people reached. I hope that you want to see people in our community reached. This invites us to ask some questions. What do we personally believe... Actually, check yourself here. What do you believe it's going to take? Is it that we become more culturally sensitive? Now, there's a place for cultural sensitivity. But it's not that in a way that compromises on truth. Is it about people coming here and having a good experience? You bet it is. We've lumped a whole bunch of ways that people serve in church into a hosting team because we want to see that there's people thoughtful about how everyone's going to turn up here and how they're going to enjoy their time here, how they're going to connect in, to see that they're loved and cared for. But as we do that, it's going to not be about giving people a Disneyland experience. It's about letting them experience God-centered things like God's love and the unity that Jesus brings about seeing his grace, about the fruit of the Spirit? Are we about reaching people with powerful and moving times together in worship, times together gathered as God's people? Yes, 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 we are. Absolutely. We just got to remember that there's nothing more impressive than the powerful thing that God's Spirit does when people's lives are transformed in response to the gospel. Let me read verse 4 again. 
my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Flashy wisdom, that was the thing for the Corinthians. And it's not that the gospel wasn't wise. That's what he says in verse 6. We do speak a message of wisdom, but it's wisdom what among the mature. Not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. It's, it's for the mature. This is a maturity thing. And so we've got to remember what is Christian maturity? Like I said before, our posture as Christians is one of humility. I actually think growing up as a Christian is increasing humility. Increasing humility. As you or I recognize what the cross is actually saying about us and what it's saying about God, that humbles us. I know it humbles me. And I see how it humbles other people. It, that's what it does. It doesn't shame us. You know, it's, I, I've, I find it, there's something that it does to me getting up every week and you know, like when we were talking about Abraham and we we're talking about ugly people and beautiful promises, or getting up and talking about sin, it does something inside you. I, sometimes I wonder, as I stand and preach most weeks, are people just hearing me tell them how sinful they are all the time? I really hope that that's not the case. Because that's not, that's not where it's at. It's not, the gospel, as we keep hearing it preached to ourselves, it's not that it might shame us into some kind of change. Because that's not the end of the story, is it? It's the, the all-surpassing power of God's work to save us from who we really are. And that humbles us. That's where we really realize how loved we are. Deeper, deeper into that love. Look at verse 9. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. We won't fully realize this until we're with him in eternity. But in the meantime, it's, it's humbling us, isn't it? And the other thing that I considered about maturity, and this is something I read somewhere through the week, is that maturity is really delayed gratification. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know. We, we live in an age where, where delayed gratification just seems like, a, like such a foreign concept because it's all about having what we want as soon as we can have it all of the time. And if maturity is about delayed gratification, then it's not about resorting to just human methods to achieve something. A bunch of non-Christian people, I think, I could think about what we could put on here that might just draw a massive crowd. And some of those things would be very ungodly. It wouldn't actually help them in any way at all, would it? If we just resort to human to, to it, it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, does it? So it's not being the most eloquent, not chasing the fads of style, still being culturally sensitive, but not chasing the fads. 
not giving in to the pressure to change the message to suit the climate. If you go and look at some churches and as, as different messages that, you know, about what's morally right as Christians are increasingly seen as the bad guys with the harmful messages as they talk about, I don't know, stuff to do with human sexuality or stuff to do with uh, race relations or anything like that. Humans, uh, sorry, Christians end up being made out to be... The, as we battle with that, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see Christian churches altering their message to try to keep up with it. It's immature. See, maturity is delayed gratification because, I mean, it's just trusting that stuff's in God's hands. Trusting the God who holds it in his hands. Just feel the weight of that verse that I read out before again. Listen to verse 9 and 10. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, these are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. There's nothing secret about that revelation. This is what he's revealed to you in the message of the gospel that makes you a Christian. Isn't that epic? Paul shifts gears in this next section and he, and he teaches into what the spirit does. And, and when you read this bit, he's, it's just gentle correction that he's giving See, what he's doing here is he's calling them to rise above the earthly and worldly way, which is how you apply this stuff. You rise above it in that grace-filled call of his to rise above it with great encouragement. And there's a great logic in these verses. Just follow through from 10 to the end with me. In verse 10, we see that the Spirit, well, it's our connection to deep convictions about who Jesus is. Of all the things the Holy Spirit will do for anyone, any way he will gift them, what he does do for every Christian believer is give us deep conviction about the gospel. In verse 11, he uses this illustration, a person's spirit knows what they truly believe. And so logically, only God's spirit knows the mind of God. So if we've received the spirit, verse 12, then we've received that revelation. We're not in the dark. We don't need some wise teacher to bring us to something else, it's already revealed. Verse 13 reminds us that God is higher than the things of this world. And so verse 14 takes us to want to rise above worldly methods and ways and means. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, rising above. And verse 16, isn't this awesome? Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, but you in Christ, have the mind of Christ. And the underlying question for us is, is twofold. Do we rely and trust on God's way of doing things? Do we trust that? And where we lack unity, which is really where this is just part two of what we were talking about last week. Where we lack unity, and that happens when we fail to put Jesus at the centre, 
What is it that we're trusting instead? What is it that we're trusting instead? Not, if, that's, if that's where we're at, at any way, in any relationship, in any major relationship in the church at any time, we've got to come back to humility. We've got to come back humbly. See, I reckon this week and last week, these are the types of sermons where you can sit here and you can think about all the other people and all the other things that they do. You can... Think about that situation with so-and-so. Maybe in the church, maybe in your family, like anywhere. We can do this. I don't Do you do this? Or is it just me? You sit there, oh, if only they heard this, they really need to hear this. We need humility. We need to know that this is what we need to hear. This is what we need to preach deeply into our hearts. And we see the path back to maturity. It's, it's the foolish path, isn't it? It's, it's 1 verse 18 again, the message of the cross. The message that is foolishness to the perishing. But you know, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we look nowhere else for it. See, we believe and unite and mature, we grow we show, we go around the wisdom and power of God as it is revealed in his gospel. And we've got nowhere else to go. We've got nowhere else we need to go. And that's a message that is encouraging, it's humbling, and it's one that we can rejoice in. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we do thank you, Lord. We we thank you for the way that Paul brought this up with these people. Lord, that he's just up front with them. And Lord, we just pray that your word will have been up front with us today. Lord, we thank you for his display of humility to acknowledge that he's not impressive, but Lord, that this all-surpassing power is from you, that it's displayed in what you did in Jesus. And so, Father, we just ask that you would bless us as your church here in this community. Lord, that we would be a church that is increasingly united around the gospel, convicted by your spirit of both what your gospel does for us and, Lord, to see that it has the power to transform. Lord, I pray that our morning tea time would be full of testimonies of your power at work in our lives. Lord, I pray that our conversations would be testimonies of that as well. Lord, throughout the week in our workplaces. Lord, in our families. Lord, build us up. Lord, where we're married, where we've got kids at home, where we've got kids out of home, wherever we are, Lord, that it might be clear that you are Lord, that you are King, that you are the one that truly brings us into a wise way of life. And Lord, where we're treated as fools, where we're considered fools, where we feel like fools, Lord, build us up. Lord, let us take heart 
write it on our hearts, Lord, that in Christ we're blessed with the mind of Christ. And sustain us in that. We hum- humbly ask. In Jesus' name, amen.